Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is my, um, marks my next last weekend here in Bristol, Virginia, Yahweh willing. Next week I'll be doing programs with Brother Ryan. On Friday night, it's going to be Christian Identity Directions. Doctrines, dogmas, and agendas. And Saturday, it will be with Pastor Mark Downey. And we will be talking about Kurdish Munchka and his plight, and also Christian identity demographics. The following week, the first weekend in August, I'll be in Panama City, Yahweh willing, and we will have open lines for two consecutive nights. Of course, I will not entertain trolls, and I will not give them the benefit of the doubt. I will cut their phone calls from the recordings. The um, trolls know who they are. They're not welcome here. They, they, they claim to hate me. They have all these disagreements with me. They, they should go back to the damn synagogues they crawled out of. That's all I could say to them. They should go back to the cesspools, genetic cesspools, that they came from and, and find something constructive to do. If they were real Christians, they would find something constructive to do. They're trolling these forums, trolling my talk shoot page, trolling my chat rooms, trying to get attention for their own sorry asses, proves that they are not Christians. Most of my listeners, the talk shoot listeners, are smart enough to see that. The trolls themselves are too damn stupid to realize that every time they show up here, they expose themselves without a doubt. I'm talking about the talk show chat. The people listening on Christogenia may not understand the context of what I'm saying, but um, that's okay. That's why we have Christogenia, and that's why we have a talk show, a, a, a talk room, a chat room at Christogenia.org, so that we could have a place that's free from the trolls. Of course, admissions by request only. And, and trolls are not allowed. And if I find one, they will be excluded from all my servers with the click of a button. Okay, tonight is 2C line, part 25. More myths dispelled. There's a few myths that um, have to be dispelled, more than a few. I'm, I'm going to hope to hit on the major ones tonight, on, on, on the most abused passages. And, and some of these passages are, are I mean, they're, they're no great secret that they, it should be readily apparent um, that these aren't talking about some spiritual Satan in heaven. The idea that Satan is in heaven is, um, it dates... Well, it dates back to before, I should say. It, it dates back before ancient Persia. And um, dualism was part of the religion of Zoroaster and, and um, the idea that both good and evil forces 
ruled from heaven, but the um, the, the the Christian manifestation of such dualism, the idea that um, Satan is in heaven, lies with a people, a, a religious sect in France. I believe I don't. It, it may have been mentioned in the early Christian Christian writers. I don't know because I haven't read them all. But the most recent manifestation of this is with the Cathars in France, and the Cathars believed that Satan was in heaven and 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 um, had all of the supernatural powers that, that basically that God had. I'm, I'm um, probably oversimplifying the Cathar beliefs, but they do not belong in Christian identity because Satan is not in heaven. Ancient poetry was usually very beautiful and used words describing things from myth or, or from nature in order to draw images in the mind which represented things such as the nature of particular beings or, or to convey particular ideas. This is especially true of biblical poetry. And, and there's a lot of debate in academic circles as to whether the, um, the biblical prophets were poets. In my estimation, they certainly were poets. David was a prophet and a poet. Moses was a prophet and a poet. The Exodus was originally written as an epic poet, a genre of poetry which was, was one, of the, one of the earliest popular forms in ancient Greece. Homer and Hesiod are examples of epic poets. Many of the prophets found in, in, in many of the segments of prophecy founded on prophets, if not most of them, were certainly written originally as poetry. And the beauty of, of ancient metaphor and allegory is especially evident in biblical prophecy. However, when we confuse poetic language with technical language, we are often led away into heresies and deceptions. There are a lot of poetic descriptions in the Bible, especially in the prophets, where when people try to force a literal interpretation of them, we not only force a misunderstanding that can lead to a particular heresy, but we are also usually forced to misrepresent other things. And we're forced to do that to cover for our first misrepresentation. What we do is, is we just build a pile of lies. And as we so often hear, one lie always leads to another. And the biggest misunderstanding is this idea of this supernatural Satan, which is supposedly in heaven, which is just plain bullshit. The Bible does not teach that anywhere. Tonight we are going to examine a few biblical passages 
whereby many have been misled into believing a rather Roman Catholic version of Satan. These passages are used to uphold the existence of this supernatural Satan in the current time. However, here we shall see that these passages are not talking about a supernatural Satan at all. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 13, 14, they're they're prophecies against Babylon. They're they're dual prophecies in in many respects, and, and as we understand dual prophecy, not all respects of the prophecy necessarily foretells the circumstances in the two or more instances of of history that it is foretelling. However, the prophecy is true when we look back at it, and it's apparently true if we imagine it in the future, if it's talking about certain events that surely have not yet been fulfilled, And the revelation is very much like that. And, well, all of the Hebrew prophets contain dual prophecies. Now, of course, all of the Hebrew prophets contain prophecies for a particular time only. Elements of Isaiah's prophecy here against Babylon are only applicable to the fall of Babylon in the ancient world, and some of those elements are applicable to the fall of the Babylon mentioned in Revelation chapter 18, which we see on the horizon of our own futures. Isaiah 14.4, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how has the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased? Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders. And of course, that is certainly, (laughs) seems to be prophetic of both the king of Babylon in Isaiah's time and the Babylonian world city. The Babylonian world system, mystery Babylon, in our own time. The whole earth is at rest, verse 7, Isaiah 14. And is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yeah, the fir trees rejoice at thee, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since thou art laid down, no feller, in other words, nobody to cut the trees down, is come against us. And we'll get back to this passage later on when we discuss Ezekiel. Hell from Denise is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirs up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations, all the kings of the nations that were subject to the Babylonians. All they shall speak. And say unto thee, Art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like unto us? 
and of course Babylon at its fall became subject to the Persians. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? Now, of course, the Catholics love that phrase. That's Lucifer. That's Satan. And he's ruling over Babylon. Satan himself, the angel from heaven, is ruling over Babylon. The Bible calls him Lucifer. So it must be Satan, right? Wrong. It's certainly not Satan. And we're going to see that when we discuss this word, this epithet, Lucifer, at great length, momentarily. First, Isaiah 14, verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The stars of God are the children of Israel. They're often called the stars of God. They're called the stars of God in the Revelation. They're called the stars of God in Judges chapter 5. Abraham's seed was to be as the stars of God, right? As the stars of heaven. Judges chapter 5. This is the song of Deborah, which she wrote in celebration of the defeat of the Canaanites under Sisera. From verse 14. Out of Ephraim, there was a root of them against Amalek. After thee, Benjamin, among thy people, out of Machir came down governors, and out of Zebulun they that handled the pen of the writer. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar, and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. Why abodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleedings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded or risked their lives under the death in the high places of the field. The kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera, the children of Israel. Verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 14. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? Well, you know, 
a couple of years ago, I was at the home of Don Spears, who, who has since revealed himself as a Baptist ass clown. And Don was going to debate me over whether Satan was in heaven because he insists that Satan was in heaven. And the man became a bully in his own house when the program, when we started to do the program. And I decided then that I was going to play the gentleman and, and um, not slap Don Spears around in his own home. So I bit my tongue. And this is an honest assessment of, of what transpired that night. I wouldn't um, buy any of this story. And I thought in my heart that I would answer him the following week from Panama City. Or, or perhaps it was from Jacksonville. I, I really don't remember. I think it was from Jacksonville. And I got to Jacksonville and I wrote my reply. And that was part of my Luke chapter 8 presentation two years ago. Two years ago maybe in June. And I demonstrated that Satan was not in heaven. Well, while I was at Don Spears' house, one of the verses that he brought up to prove that Satan was in heaven in our conversations before the program, in the days leading up to the program, one of the verses he brought up was this verse in Isaiah, talking about Lucifer. And I urged him to read a little, a little further in the chapter, and he understood that he shouldn't bring this passage up during the program, and he didn't. But he's still saying Satan is in heaven, right? He, he realized he couldn't use this passage to prove it, but he's still saying Satan is in heaven, and he abused a lot of other passages, such as the 82nd Psalm, in order to prove his point. And those can be taken apart readily also. And we'll talk about the 82nd Psalm later this evening. But we see here that Lucifer is a man. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? And you can see this in any great world leader. Let's take Barack Obama, strip that nigger clean, and throw him in a basketball court. And the whole world will say, is that the man that, that, that rattled this saber and, and commanded all these great technological armies and air powers for all those years? Yeah, same thing. That made the world as a wilderness, that destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. In other words, he had no mercy on the people he conquered. All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, as the raiment of those that are slain, thrust through with a sword, that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden under, under feet. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Prepare slaughter for his children and for the iniquity of their fathers, the Babylonian kings, that they do not rise nor possess the land nor fill the face of the world with cities. For I will rise up against them, saith Yahweh of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant, 
and son and nephew, saith Yahweh. This term Lucifer, I'm going to quote so that we understand this term. It's very important biblical concept to understand this term Lucifer, and, and we'll see the reasons why some of the statements were made about Christ that were made later. The Gospel, the Gospel of John, and in Revelation. I'm going to quote, in order to see the significance of this name Lucifer, from pages 307 and 308 of a book called Kingship and the Gods, a study of ancient Near Eastern religion as the integration of society and nature by Henry Frankfurt, first published by the University of Chicago in 1948. Now this book, I found this book, I usually don't quote from books like this, but I found this book was referred to in a footnote on page 389 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, a book which I often quote as my source for ancient Sumerian and, and Assyrian texts, and also others. And, and um, it was published in 1969, Princeton University Press. And on page 389 of the ancient Near Eastern texts, we see in an Akkadian inscription of the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, that the word for son is also, and very clear in the context, used in reference to the Assyrian king. I'm quoting this source, that this um, ancient Near Eastern text referred me to this other book, Kingship and the Gods, and I'm quoting it because I studied it, and, and it's a good, this section is a very good source because it is indeed a good description of what I have also noticed in so many ancient inscriptions which are relative to this topic and to scripture. So from page, um, I'm sorry, this is from page 308, I believe. The king and the powers in nature is the chapter subtitle. And I quote, although the mechanics of magic allowed the Mesopotamian king to exert some pressure, the natural processes remained under the control of the gods. And the king could only attempt to bring about favorable conditions by retaining the divine favor. The indirectness of his influence. Now, Frankfurt is really reflecting what, from the inscriptions, the ancient people of Mesopotamia had believed. But the sources are likely to be misinterpreted. I'm sorry, the indirectness of his influence upon nature is amply illustrated by our quotations, but the sources are likely to be misinterpreted. The literary style of the ancient Near East is often repetitious. And we see that, as I just spoke about Hebrew poetry, Hebrew prophecy, we see that in the Hebrew Bible. We see it throughout the Hebrew Bible because the Hebrew writers practiced what is called parallelism. 
where an object or, or an event is described. Sometimes it's only two verses. Sometimes it's two paragraphs, as we shall see later in Ezekiel. An object, a man, an event, or something is described two different ways in consecutive descriptions in, in parallel in a parallel manner. And, and um, we even see that in a lot of the language of the New Testament. What, where we see in the King James Version, a lot of times we'll see the word even, Yahweh, thy God, even the father of Prince Yahshua Christ, right? So, so we're referring to the Lord thy God, who is also the father of our Prince Yahshua Christ, and, and that's a parallelism. They're both referring to the same individual, right? And there's much longer parallelisms than, than that throughout the prophets. That's a simple one. The indirectness of his influence upon nature is amply illustrated by our quotations, but the sources are likely to be misinterpreted. The literary style of the ancient Near East is often repetitious. It achieves richness and variety by elaborate imagery, but metaphors, and this is important to the Bible too, but metaphors can be understood only if their frame of reference is fully grasped. Consequently, we must attach a different significance to similar sounding phrases in Egyptian and in Mesopotamian texts, for they imply a different theological aspect of kingship. If we survey the usual Mesopotamian expressions which seem to suggest that the king had power over nature, we shall find that, with but a very few exceptions, they remain within the bounds of Mesopotamian theology. In other words, they didn't spill over to Egypt or, or other areas. In Mesopotamia, as in Egypt, the ruler is often compared with the sun, oh, Lucifer. Hammurabi stated in the preamble of his law, Code 5, lines 4 to 9, I am the sun of Babylon, S-U-N, the son of Babylon, who causes light to rise over the land of Sumer and Akkad. The deified, the deified, the Assyrians deified their kings, just like the Romans later deified their emperors. The deified Amar-Sin calls himself a true god, the son of this land. If in the translation of Hammurabi's epithet, we have used sun rather than sun god, while the Akkadian Shamsu may mean either, we have done so precisely because we consider these expressions to be metaphors. And, and when this author, Frankfurt, uses the term we, he speaks not only for himself, but He's writing for the University of Chicago, the schools of oriental research, and, and, and he's probably representing a number of his colleagues as well. Moreover, the qualifications of his land, of Babylon, agree better with the translation sun than with the notion implied in the English term sun god 
in Egyptian texts of the New Kingdom, we find similar expressions. However, these do not occur in older inscriptions, but appear when Pharaoh's rightful dominion over the whole earth had been challenged by strong Asiatic peoples. Tutmosis III, who, who is actually what, one of the um, Pharaohs when the Hebrews were in captivity in Egypt, I'm not sure off the top of my head whether Tutmosis III or his successor Tutmosis IV was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, but it was one of them. Tutmosis III is called ruler of rulers, son of all lands. Seti one, and that's S-U-N, right? Son of all lands. Seti one, Ray, quote, Ray of Egypt and moon of all lands, or king of Egypt, Ray, and Ray was this, the, of, of, of a um, Ray was a reference to the sun also. Ray of the nine bows, the later being the traditional formula for foreign peoples. These expressions are unusual in Egypt, where the normal way of comparing Pharaoh with the sun is based on the intimate relation between prototype and successor, progenitor and offspring. The fact that purely metaphorical comparisons between king and son could arise, even in Egypt, adds force to the translation son rather than sun god in Hammurabi's text. So the, the author is putting out a thesis, and, and it's a very plausible one, that the Akkadian kings were actually calling themselves, and the Babylonian kings were actually referring to themselves as the sun, which they did. Moreover, if the expression son of Babylon, S-U-N, were not understood as a metaphor, it would be it would be not only difficult to explain its use by Hammurabi, who never claimed divinity, but impossible to explain why the late Assyrian kings often styled themselves son of the totality of mankind, and that's what they often called themselves in their inscriptions, son, S-U-N, of the totality of all of mankind. And obviously, obviously, the Assyrians only ruled over the Adamic oikumene, over the white world. They didn't include the other races because they never ruled over the other races. Quite often, the metaphorical character of this and similar uses of the word son is unmistakable. It is so when Ernamu of Ur, now this is a very old reference, the Sumerians, when Ernamu of Ur is said to have been predestined by Enlil to rule the land like Utu himself, like the sun. Even the deified Lipit Ishtar, another deified king in antiquity, uses the comparison with the sun quite clearly as a metaphor without claiming identity. 
And Hammurabi states a little before the quotation we have given that Anu and Enlil, when they chose, these are the gods of their pantheon, when they chose Marduk as ruler over all men, also named him to make legislation appear in the land, to destroy the evil and the wicked, so that the strong should not harm the weak, so that I should appear like the sun, S-U-N, to the black-headed people and make light the land and create well-being for mankind. That's from Code 1, lines 32 to 48. And one day in a program, I'll explain what I believe. And these are much debated. What I believe the references to the black-headed people mean in the ancient Assyrian inscriptions. And, and I'm sorry, Sumerian inscriptions, because these people were certainly white people, there's no doubt. In dealing with Egyptian beliefs, we have described how the sun quite universally appears to be symbolic of order and hence also of the order of justice. And in this respect, the king could be viewed in Mesopotamia as elsewhere, as an image of the sun god. Hence the prayer, may Ur Ninurta, like Shamash, rule the country for many years, which resembles the words spoken nowadays in Westminster Abbey before the enthronement of the King of England, when the Archbishop prays that God may establish his throne in righteousness, that it may stand fast forevermore, like as the sun before him, and as the faithful witness in heaven. When Mesopotamian, when the Mesopotamian or Mesopotamian king was compared with the sun, the essential distinction between the earthly prince and the sun god was not ignored. And the same qualification applies to a number of phrases which were applied to the ruler as well as to the gods. None of these expresses an identity. All merely proclaim that from the point of view of the subject, the king seems godlike. Hence we read in the prayer of an ill-fated Babylonian, may the God who rejected me help me, may the goddess who resented me have pity on me, may the shepherd, the son of man, the king, who is like a god, be gracious to me. In this derived sense, the comparison of the king with the sun is common throughout the ancient Near East, but only in Egypt is there a precise theological concept implied in the view that the king is the image of the sun upon earth. That's the end of the quote. The word Lucifer is from a compound Latin word that means light bearer. Where it appears in Isaiah chapter 14, the Greek of the Septuagint is Eosphorus. Eosphorus, a word which has the same meaning. Ostensibly, Yahweh is scoffing at the king of Babylon, 
Oh, light bearer. Yeah, right. Since he claimed for himself to be the sun on earth. As we have just seen from these Babylonian, Sumerian, Akkadian, and Egyptian inscriptions, or this assessment of those inscriptions, let me put it that way. When the king of Babylon was taken off his throne, as Isaiah says, Lucifer had fallen from heaven. The kings were seen as the sun on earth. The Egyptian king was seen as the sun on earth and the moon. Heaven, often, even in scripture, actually represents the seats of power and government because the thrones of kings, not only in, in, in David's Jerusalem, but the thrones of kings were seen as the link between the people and the deity. And that was a common perception in the ancient Near East. So heaven doesn't always mean the sky. And we have to be careful how to interpret these things. In, Roman, in, in Revelation chapter 6, I explained two years ago that when the sun and moon and stars fell from heaven, that that prophetically, in poetic language, in language that's very ancient in the traditions of our people, meant that the government of the Roman Empire would fall. The sun would not give its light, and the moon would turn dark. Well, the powers of the emperors of Rome had been extinguished. The idea that Lucifer is Satan in the idea of a small s, adversary, because Satan means adversary in Hebrew, that idea is true. That is because in reality, only Yahweh God can rightfully be king over his people. And where Isaiah attributes the words to the king of Babylon that, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. We see that a man desiring to rule over the people of God is contrary to the will of God. So that man becomes an adversary, a small s Satan before God. But that Satan is a man. He's not some horned, pitchfork-carrying, red, devil-like, capital S, Satan in heaven. That's absurd. That's the medieval cartoon view of Scripture. And it's ridiculous. And we should kick that in the hell out of Christian identity because it doesn't belong in Scripture. Because kings had imagined themselves to be the light bearers, the sun on, the sun on earth. Because of that do we see in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, 
these words of Christ. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. He is the true light bearer, the only true light bearer. Only he can be the sun on earth. Only he can give us legislation. Only he can make our laws in righteousness. That's why John describes him as the light come into the world. With that, we will move on to Ezekiel chapter 28 from verse 1. And these two are passages often abused by people who want to put Satan in heaven. And Satan doesn't belong in heaven because Satan fell out of heaven. Satan was cast out of heaven before the Adamic man was placed on earth. That's what the scripture says. And his place was found no more in heaven. And anybody who wants to contest that is contending with the word of God. Don Spears, Jeremy, Geronimo, Visser, contending with the word of God and making themselves a small s Satan. That's exactly what they're doing. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. And we just saw a historical context for all of this, right? In the Babylonian scriptures, which are right around the same time. They're not too much before this. I mean, Hammurabi is. Hammurabi is probably about, off the top of my head, maybe 1900 B.C. But the Assyrian kings, Ashurbanipal and, and the king of Babylon in Isaiah, they're like just a couple of hundred years before um, the prince of Tyre, and, and Tyre was destroyed. And, and Isaiah is only no more than 120, 130 years before Ezekiel had written these words. The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith Yahweh God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man, and not God. So we see, Without a doubt, the prince of Tyrus is also a man. He's not a god. He's not a Satan or a spirit in heaven. He's a man. He doesn't have horns and a tail and a trident. Yet thou art a man and not God. Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. The name Daniel means God judges. The reference could very well be to the prophet Daniel here, who was, at the time that Ezekiel wrote these words, a young man in Babylon, but who, have, who may have already been elevated among the people. With thy wisdom 
and with thine understanding thou hast gotten thee riches, and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. But by thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, or merchandising, thou hast increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, because thou hast said, has set thine heart as the heart of God. In other words, he imagined himself to be a God. Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt lie, thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Will thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou, now the King James has, thou shalt be a man. But the King James already had, in verse 2, yet thou art a man. The words shalt be are inferred. <clears throat> They're not actually in the text. They're in italics. The um, New American Standard Bible and the Septuagint both have explicitly, you are a man. But you are a man, and no God, in the hand of him that slays thee. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith Yahweh God. Now how could the prince of Tyre die the deaths of the uncircumcised? Why would that be a, 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 um, a reproach to him if he were a Gentile? The truth is that the prince of Tyre, the kings of Tyre, were actually Israelites. So the prince of Tyre was a man and not a god. But we have seen that the ancient kings of the East imagined themselves to be gods. Even some of the later Roman emperors imagined themselves to be gods or to become gods after they died. They also imagined themselves to be the sun on earth, having taken such notions from the Eastern pagan religions. Yet, you know, it's real funny that today's neo-pagans say to Christians, oh, you're, you're, that's some Eastern desert religion. If you compare the ancient inscriptions to the beliefs of the Greeks and Romans, they are also Eastern desert religions. That's because our entire race came out of the Eastern deserts, and the pagans were stuck on stupid then, and they're stuck on stupid now. There's no doubt. They don't know the things that they claim to proclaim. They don't know what they're talking about. That's an aside. Even in the book of Acts, in chapter 12, the people said of Herod Agrippa I that he was a god. From verse 21, And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately, the angel of Yahweh smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and gave up the ghost. He died. To continue with Ezekiel chapter 28.
Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith Yahweh God, Thou sealest up the psalm, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle. The workmanship of tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in the day that thou wast created. Here it goes. Oh, no, we got you now, Fink. The Baptist ass clowns have me now. They could prove that this is talking about Satan because he was in Eden. Right. Not. <laughs> this is not talking about Satan. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. That was the pond, the holy mountain of God, which didn't exist in Eden, that's for sure. Thou hast walked up and down the, in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created, till iniquity was found in thee. We're going to take these one at a time and talk about them. These little expressions that these Satan in heaven clowns use to try to prove that Satan's in heaven. I should say these Baptist ass clowns. I'm sorry I'm using that insider's term in this podcast. But I'm compelled to do it. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, the Garden of God was the Adamic oikumene, the living space of the Adamic race. This much is demonstrated in Ezekiel chapter 31, where it says from verse 3, Behold, the Assyrian, now the Assyrians are descendants of the, of the son of Sham, Asher. That's where the Assyrians come from, right? They're, they don't exist until... Genesis chapter 10. Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches. So the garden of God must be in Lebanon, right? And with a shadowing shroud of a high stature, and his top was among the thick bows. The waters made him great. The deep set him up on high with her rivers running round about his plants and sent out her little rivers into all the trees of the field. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field. His bows were multiplied, and his branches became long because of the multitude of waters, and he shot forth. All the fowls of heaven made their nests in his bows, and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young, and under his shadow dwelt all great nations, nations which didn't exist in the Garden of Eden. Thus he was fair in his greatness, in the length of his branches, for his root was great by water, was by great waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his bows, and the chestnut trees, the other nations of the Adamic world. And the chestnut trees were not like his branches, 
nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. This is not technical language. This is poetic, prophetic language. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, because thou hast lifted up thyself in my height, and he has shot up his top among the thick bows, and his heart lifted up in his height. His heart is lifted up in his height. I have therefore delivered him into the hand of the mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with him. I have driven him out for his wickedness. It was an oracle against Assyria. How great Assyria had become in the Adamic Oikumene, which is the garden of God. The Assyrian did not rise as an empire until about the 13th century B.C. It's not talking about the Garden of Eden. The Garden of God, Eden here, is the Adamic Oikumene, the dwelling place on earth of our Adamic race. The Assyrian did not even exist until Asher had children, Genesis chapter 10. Therefore, the references to the Garden of God in Ezekiel are not to the original Garden of Eden. They are rather a poetic description for the land of the Adamic nations at that time. We saw a similar poetic representation earlier in this discourse in Isaiah chapter 14, discussing the epithet Lucifer, where it said in verse 7, the whole earth, meaning the entire Adamic world, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yeah, the fir trees rejoice at me and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, now the Assyrian here in Ezekiel is called the cedars of Lebanon saying, since thou art laid down, no feller, nobody to cut us down, is come up against us. So the garden of God in Ezekiel 31 is a metaphor for the Adamic world as it existed when Ezekiel wrote, when he was giving his oracle against the Assyrians. And the garden of God In Ezekiel chapter 28, where we see the king of Tyrus, is also a reference to the Adamic world. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Ezekiel has to be using the terms in chapter 28 in the same manner in which he used them in Ezekiel 31. Likewise, the phrase holy mountain of God, which we see of this king of Tyrus in Ezekiel 28, verse 14. I have set thee so, thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. That phrase is a metaphor for the children of Israel. The kings of Tyre, as we see that he would be reproached by dying the death of the uncircumcised in the first part of this that this, um, this oracle, which is aimed at the prince of Tyre, he was ruling over the children of Israel. 
The holy mountain of God is a metaphor for the children of Israel throughout Scripture. The kings of Tyre ruled over a great portion of the children of Israel, not in the land of Israel, but those who had colonized the Mediterranean and who are known to historians as Phoenicians. And the kings of Tyre collected tribute. The kings of Tyre were seen as the the, the, the fatherland, Tyre was seen as the fatherland to these nations. And Herodotus explains this, and other historians explain this. The Carthaginians paid tribute to Tyre. They, they, they took their orders from Tyre. That was their homeland. Just like the American colonies before the revolution paid tribute to England and took their marching orders from the English king. Same thing. From Daniel 9.20, And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before Yahweh my God for the holy mountain of my God. And of course, the geological mountains do not need supplication. Daniel chapter 2 describes the Germanic tribes which destroyed Rome as the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. And that mountain, too, is a reference to the people of Yahweh, to the children of Israel. The mountain of God, the king of Tyre, was upon it because he was ruling over it. The cherub. The cherub here. That was the anointed cherub, where it talks of the king of Tyre. So many fools rashly imagine that the cherub was some sort of angel. See that? This has to be talking about Satan. He was a cherub in the garden. So they claimed that the king of Tyre had to be a fallen angel, or perhaps even Satan, this personal, individual Satan. Rather, the cherub was an animal figure. It wasn't an angel. It was never an angel. The cherub was an animal figure formed from diverse parts of other animals. The Catholic Church made it a, a, a fat little baby angel, I think they called it, a cherub. The Catholic Church made the cherub an angel because they had to borrow those angel symbols from Greek and Roman paganism. Those people with, with, um, with long gowns and wings or those little babies with diapers and wings. That's Catholic. That's not Christian. That doesn't belong in the Bible. The cherub was an animal figure formed from diverse parts of other animals. Therefore, if we want to imagine that the king of Tyrus was a supernatural being, we can't imagine him to have been an angel. We have to imagine him to have been an animal. From Psalm 18, from verse 10, part of a poetic description of Yahweh's coming to the aid of David. And David wrote, David wrote, and he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yeah, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. And the same words are repeated in the same context in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 11. The living creatures of the vision of Ezekiel in the opening chapter of his prophecy were described in part thusly. As for the likeness of their faces, they, had, they, they four, four living creatures, had the face of a man and the face of a lion, 
on the right side, and they had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Now, cherubs are named because the, the, the Assyrians spoke a language very similar to the Hebrews. It was a Shemitic language, which was not very far, sort of like the relationship between Aramaic and Hebrew. We have basically the same relationship between the Assyrian language, which is called Akkadian and Hebrew. And in the Assyrian language, we see in the inscriptions many references to the cherub. And the Assyrian cherub is often um, depicted on the reliefs, the, the archaeological um, drawings, the, the stone inscriptions, which were drawn on the sides of the Assyrian palaces, on, on bricks in their castles, and in a lot of other venues. <clears throat> and, and the Assyrian cherub was basically a winged bull with the head of a man. And we see that they're referred to as cherubs in the Assyrian texts. Countless cherubs have been found in archaeology in a Hebrew setting, not so much in Palestine, but in Europe, where the Phoenicians settled, in Iberia. And, and some of those are on the, um, the website of Christogenia.org. I, I have some images displaying some of the specimens. And the, the Hebrew cherub, in its fullness, because there were some dumbed-down versions later on, but in its fullness, the Hebrew cherub was a figure which represented the symbols of the chief of the four tribes of Israel around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the Hebrew cherub had the head of a man and, and the forebody of a bull and the hind body of a lion and the wings of an eagle. And they're the symbols of the tribes of Reuben, Judah, Dan, and Ephraim. So if you want to think that, that this um, king of Tyre was a literal cherub, he sure as hell wasn't an angel in heaven or an angel in the Garden of Eden. He would have had to have been a hybrid animal, <laughs> an, an animal made from the, the, the parts of these other animals, because that's what a cherub was. A cherub wasn't actually a real natural creature, of course. A cherub was a symbol used in ancient times by our race in various places. And the Sphinx is really a, a dumbed-down sort of cherub. Well, the Assyrians had them in their inscriptions too, and the cherubs were placed atop the Ark of the Covenant. The balance of the prophecy in Ezekiel substantiates the notion that this king of Tyrus was a man who was king and not some angelic supernatural being. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and now hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. He was one of the people of God. And he profaned himself, so he was being cast out. He was anointed by God. 
He was made, Yahweh is the kingmaker. He was made the king of Tyre. And for his sin, he was being cast out of the mountain. He wasn't being cast out of heaven. He was being cast out of God's people, the body of God's people. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. So we see that this king of Tyre's sanctuaries were earthly sanctuaries. They weren't heavenly sanctuaries. I'm sure there aren't Jews in heaven making barter and trade for merchandise, right? Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee, and all they that know thee among the people, that know thee among the people. This isn't Satan. A lot of these clowns that claim Satan is in heaven think that the prince of Tyre is the ruler of Tyre, and the king of Tyre is really a Satan in heaven. Some of them claim it the opposite way around, but these are both men. These two episodes in Ezekiel chapter 28 are actually referring to the same man because this is a Hebrew parallelism. Therefore, I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth inside of all of them that behold thee and all they that know thee among the people. So this is just a man known among the people, shall be astonished at thee, shall be a terror, and, shall, and never shalt thou be any more. These are important, these words. And never shalt thou be any more. The prophecies in Ezekiel 28, the lamentations to the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre are an example of Hebrew parallelism, which is a literary device whereby the same entity is described in different ways in consecutive passages. They are actually referring to one and the same individual, the Adamic man, the child of God, the Israelite, because he was from the mountain of God, which describes Israel, who ruled Tyre, but imagined for himself to be a god which, as we've seen, was a common perception regarding the kings of the ancient world. Ancient Tyre has not had a king since the city was destroyed in the days of Alexander the Great, circa 330 B.C. Yet, if there is a Satan found anywhere in existence after this time, then this king of Tyre was a man, and not Satan, because here he is, here he is told, that when he's cast off his throne, that he never shall be any more. Yet, according to John the Apostle, Satan's seat is in Pergamos in 90 AD. Imagine that. That is because Satan is a race of individuals and not an angel in heaven. Anybody who thinks Satan is an angel in heaven is a clown. Let's discuss the 82nd Psalm. I threw this in here because it's a favorite of the Baptist ass clown, Don Spears. And he tried to use this as proof against me, bullying me 
in, in his own home, and that's the only way he got away with bullying me because nobody's going to bully me. But I will be humble in another man's home. This is the psalm of Asaph, and that is important to know because it sets the writing of the psalm in the period of the Babylonian captivity when Asaph was writing. This is not a psalm of David, the 82nd psalm, but it certainly is scripture because Christ quotes it as scripture. Psalm 82, verse 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, the small g gods, because if we're children of God, we are gods. But we can't imagine ourselves to be gods. We are men. We are only small g gods. With him is our father. When we are completely obedient to him, we will be like our master. We won't be our master. We can't be gods by ourselves. We will be like our masters. That's a topic for another time. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. Now, some people might say, well, that word gods can mean judges, and it can. But when Christ cites this passage in the New Testament, the word is theos, God. It's not krites or judge in Greek. It's two different words. Even though it's the same word in Hebrew, it's two different words with distinct meanings in Greek. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. The children of God are supposed to be judges. They're supposed to be righteous judges, right? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not. Neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, and this is what Christ quotes, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like man for our iniquity, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Because there is a phrase, sons of God, in Genesis chapter 6, certain men with agendas, like Don Spears, Jeremy Visser, Therefore, insist that this reference to the children of the Most High here must be a reference to angels in heaven. And then they insist, in spite of what the text actually says here, that the reference must be to satanic angels. That's what Don Spears tried to insist. The truth is that ancient biblical context and certain ancient biblical and apocryphal manuscripts reveal that the phrase sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 should be read as sons of heaven. Adam was the son of God, and the daughters of Adamic man are the daughters of God. But here in this psalm, in verse 2, we see the words, How long will you judge unjustly? Not do unjustly, judge unjustly, and accept 
the persons of the wicked. Not be the persons of the wicked, accept the persons of the wicked. So clowns like Don Spears, who think that this is referring to satanic angels, are just lying because we see with absolute clarity here that these are good children of God who are being upbraided, who are being scolded by God for accepting the persons of the wicked. If we want to take the Don Spears spin on this passage and act like an idiot or, or play stupid or be stuck on stupid, we have to imagine that the satanic angels are being scolded by God for accepting the persons of themselves. That doesn't make any damn sense whatsoever. None whatsoever. These words, this 82nd Psalm, refers to us. It was fulfilled in Christ. God stands in the assembly of the gods, in the assembly of his children, and says, how long will you accept the persons of the wicked? That's probably half of the message of the gospel. And Christ fulfilled it. In Isaiah 14.1, we see these words of the children of Israel. Ye are the children of Yahweh your God. In John 11.52, we see that Christ died, as John explains, as John explains that the high priest attested, not for that nation only, but also that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Christ died for Israel. He didn't die for the angels that sinned. He didn't die for Satan in heaven. Christ died for Israel. Isaiah 43, 6, where Yahweh prophecies concerning the scattered children of Israel, agrees with John eleven fifty two. They should be cross-referenced, right? I don't know if they are or not, because I really don't pay attention, but they should be. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. They should be cross-referenced. I should say I really don't pay attention to the mainstream cross-references. Uh, I have my own notes. Quoting the very words of Psalm 82, Christ himself ex tells us explicitly in John 10, 34 and 35, that this psalm applies to those men whom the, to whom the word of God came. And that's what he's saying of this 82nd psalm. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I say, ye are gods. And if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, meaning the children of Israel, because the children of Israel have an opportunity to be like God if they fashion themselves after Christ and comply in obedience to him. If he called them gods, the Greek word theoi, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. So Psalm 82 is not talking about Satan in heaven, Mr. Spears, or anybody else that buys that line of crap. Therefore, the children of the Most High in the 82nd Psalm can only be the children of Israel, who fell from the grace of God, who were taken into captivity, because they accepted the persons of the wicked. Think about that. The next time you, could, you think you could have a nigger friend or a Jew friend, you can't. 
You'll be punished by God for as long as you have a non-Israelite friend. For as long as you accept the persons of the wicked, God's going to punish you. You might think you have it good today. You keep your little Jew and nigger friends and see what happens to you in the end. Identity Christians should know enough to stay away from Cherokee nations or Cherokee People's Ministry, Jews from Chicago, Baptist ass clowns who promote universalism. We should stay away from them because that is accepting the persons of the wicked. We can have no friends of other races. We should have no association with other races. We should separate ourselves from them. That's what's required of us by Scripture. We don't accept the persons of the wicked. That sure as hell isn't talking about Satan. It's talking about us. Revelation chapter 12 contains prophecy wrapped in poetic allegory which describes things that both occurred in the past and would take place again in the future, the majesty of the word of God. Here are just a few verses from verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Don't look for any Satan in heaven, because we know that this transpired. How did this transpire? Because we know from verse 9 who the old serpent is. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent, which we see in the Garden of Eden, before Adam was even put there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already there, and the serpent was attached to it. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, if you claim that Satan is in heaven today, you're a liar, because Revelation chapter 12 says that they were cast out, and neither was their place found any more in heaven. Christ said in Luke chapter 10, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. You know that word beheld? That's past tense. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And Christ is talking about serpents and scorpions that are really men. The apostles weren't going out into the damn desert to turn the rocks over to look for snakes and bugs. Serpents and scorpions are metaphors for men. And we see that Satan in Luke chapter 10 already fell and is connected to the idea of men who are serpents and scorpions. The same thing we see in Genesis chapter 3. The devil, Satan, that old serpent, is a man by that time. He's not an angel. He's a fallen angel. We can argue about what we think that angel may have been originally, but it doesn't matter by that time. It doesn't matter by the start of Scripture. Satan is not in heaven anymore. Where are the angels that sinned? 
the angels that sin, the angels of Genesis. Where are they? The Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be received into judgment. If you say that the angel, that Satan's in heaven and, and Satan is related to these fallen angels and you're t- putting him in heaven, you're arguing with Peter. You're denying the apostle Peter because Peter says that they're delivered into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment. They're cast down to hell. Whatever you want to think hell is doesn't matter. Whatever you want to think those chains of darkness are, doesn't matter. Satan is not in heaven. How many witnesses is that in Scripture? Likewise, the Apostle Jude, that's the third witness in the New Testament. Jude is the fourth. The Apostle Jude tells us in verse 6 of his epistle, and the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Oh, they left heaven. Okay, that's what Jude's telling us. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. If you think Satan's in heaven, you're a clown. You can't read the Bible. That's four witnesses. Satan is not in heaven. Whatever you want to think chains of darkness may be, one thing is certain. The fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12 are not in heaven. In fact, Luke 19, Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 10 verse 19 is a part of the proof that they are actually the non-Adamic races, that those chains of darkness are genetic chains of darkness that equal serpents and scorpions, men that are not Adam because they're serpents and scorpions. Those men are the fallen angels bound in chains of darkness. That's the scripture. That's the only way to reconcile Jude, Peter, and Christ in Luke 10, 19. With this understanding, we can discuss 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's a lot of confusion over this chapter. Some of it because of the ass clowns, but some of it because it is so badly translated in the King James Version. We shall read it from the Christianity New Testament because of that. But I will make some notes concerning the translation in the King James, although I will not discuss all of the errors of that version here. Two Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sorry about the squeaky chair. I have to put WD-40 on it again. Now we ask you, brethren, concerning the presence of our Prince, Yahshua Christ, and our gathering to him, that you are not to be quickly shaken from this purpose, that you should not be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as if by us, as though the day of the Prince is present. In other words, Christians should always act as if today is the day of the second advent. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way because if apostasy had not come first, now the King James Version there says, except 
there come a falling away first. That translation is a lie. Why? Because it implies that the apostasy was still in the future. And it's a lie. It's a lie because in all the Greek manuscripts of this letter, the verb is in the aorist tense. Now, the aorist tense is a tense that we don't have in English. In English, we have an imperfect tense, which is close, a past tense, a present tense, right? Perfect, imperfect, and present, and future. This verb is in the aorist tense in Greek, and it signifies an action which may not have yet been completed when the writer was writing it or the speaker was speaking it. But the action certainly began in the past. So except there come a falling away first is a lie because it implies the future. But the aorist tense of the verb here insists that when Paul wrote this epistle, the apostasy had already begun because the aorist tense signifies with all certainty that the action began in the past. And a man of lawlessness then revealed, now here again, the King James Version is lying because it has be revealed, which is ambiguous, but again leaves open the possibility that it's going to happen in the future. But again, Paul used a verb of the aorist tense, and therefore the revealing of the man of lawlessness had to have begun before Paul wrote the epistle. Of course, the revealing of the man of lawlessness happened with the crucifixion of Christ and his ministry. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first and the man of lawlessness been revealed, the son of destruction, Esau, the vessels of destruction, Romans chapter 9, he who is opposing and exalting himself. Now, these verbs are of the present tense. They're present tense participles in Greek. So this was happening while Paul wrote. He who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. So he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, present tense. He is seated. Opposing and exalting himself, present tense, again. This is going on while Paul is writing. So he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing present tense, present tense participle, representing himself that he is a god. And Paul is describing the Edomites in Judea, the Sadducee Edomite high priests. That's who Paul is describing. They're the only people 
that meet this description, not Satan in heaven. That's crazy. But that's how some of these Baptist ass clowns and these Catholics and other denominational sects want to interpret these passages. But Paul is describing people who have already, there had already been an apostasy, a falling away. When the Judeans, when they accepted the persons of the ungodly and took in all these Edomites and Canaanites into their nation and religion, forced them in, that was already an apostasy. And those people were primarily responsible for killing the Christ. And those people were at Paul's time seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself that he is a god. And Paul says in verse 5, Do you not remember that, yet being with you? I had told these things to you, and you now know that, and you know that that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time. So the aorist tense reflects the idea that the action, the revealing, started in the past, but it wasn't yet complete. For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently, the princes of this world. These are the princes of this world, Christ referred to, and it Paul referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Those whom Paul said crucified the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And you know that that which now prevails for him to be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently until he should be out of the way, the Edomite Jew. Then will the lawless, and, and the substantive is singular there for, for lawless, the lawless, meaning the lawless one. The substantive is singular, but it's not reflected that way in the Christogonian New Testament because, because it's seen as a collective entity. And that is proven out when we advance further in the chapter and we see that the lawless are referred to by Paul as those, they, and them in verses 10 and 11, where the subject has not changed. And then will the lawless be revealed, whom Prince Yahshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence, meaning the second advent of Christ. Paul is referring to the same thing prophesied in Revelation chapter 19, after the fall of Babylon, when Yahshua Christ returns and destroys all of his enemies, as it's prophesied in the Revelation. Prince Yahshua returns and destroys them, as Paul explains here, at the manifestation of his presence. That means that he's not destroying Satan in heaven. He has to come here first. He's destroying Satan on earth. 
Paul's referring to the same events referred to by Obadiah 17 and 18, Revelation chapter 19, Micah chapter 4, Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. This is going to happen on earth, not in heaven. Therefore, Satan is on earth, not in heaven. This Satan in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is on earth sitting in the temple of God on earth, imagining himself to be a god on earth. Anybody who says that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is about some future, as Clifton Emmerheiser likes to say, super-duper antichrist, this Satan spirit being in heaven is just full of it. These people are just clowns. They don't really believe the Bible. We just gave four witnesses that proved that Satan is not in heaven. Revelation 12, Christ in Luke chapter 10, 2 Peter chapter 2, and the Apostle Jude. Four witnesses. What more do we need? Satan is here on earth, bound in chains of darkness, serpents and scorpions. That's two seed line. That's proper two seed line. That's what two seed line really should be. Two races of people. Two types of people. Because the tree of knowledge of good and evil is a lot more than just a single race. They're all bastards. They can't be truly a race. It's the us and them. The sheep and the goats. The Adamic race. And those who are not. Adamic. To continue with Paul, verse 9. 2 Thessalonians, verse 9. Whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, Satan. The collective entity, not a single individual in heaven. This is how they act. The tree is known by its fruit. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. This is how they act naturally because of their corrupted genetics. In all power and signs and wonders of falsehood and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing, all non-Adamic people are those who are perishing because they accepted not the love of the truth, because at one time, those fallen angels were good. That's why they're the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They rejected good. They rejected truth. And they became knowledgeable of evil. You should be judging. Uh, I'm sorry. And because Yahweh sends to them an operation of error, for them to believe in that which is false, that all those should be judged who, believing not in the truth, rather have satisfaction in unrighteousness. When you depart from the way, when you reject the word of God, when you fornicate, when you race mix, when you're turned over to Satan by God for your punishment, you rejected the truth. It's because you rejected the love of the truth, which is in his law. So you're punished along with the adversary. They were all pure at one time, and they all corrupted themselves. They all became bastards. 
Now, we are obliged to give thanks to Yahweh at all times for you, brethren, beloved by the prince, because Yahweh had chosen you from the beginning, meaning he's writing to Thessalonians, but he's writing to lost Israelites, for preservation and sanctification of spirit and belief of truth. Keep the law of God, and God will look out for you, and you'll be preserved. The Thessalonians are there. Every white man today is here because at some point in the past, his ancestors decided to keep the law of God, whether they knew it consciously or not. These are Israelite vessels of mercy as opposed to the Edomite vessels of destruction. For which he also called you through our good message to the acquisition of the honor of our prince, Yahshua Christ. So then, brethren, you stand fast and hold fast the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by our letter. Now our prince, Yahshua Christ himself, even Yahweh our Father, who has loved and given us eternal encouragement and good expectation by favor, may he encourage your hearts and may he establish you in every good deed and word. And now we're going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 3. Because there's a serious King James mistranslation here. But this also shows that Paul is talking about a group and not about a single individual in chapter 2. For what remains, pray, brethren, for us in order that the word of the prince may move quickly and be extolled, just as even with you. And that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men since the faith is not for all. And the King James Version has there For all men have not faith. And that is another lie. And if you look at the King James Version, the word men is not in the text. It's in italics, meaning that they added it in. But if you look at the Greek, you'll see that the word have is not there either. There's no verb there. There's no verb in the clause. The only words in Greek in the clause are four, and they represent sense, not, faith, and all. That's it. They're the only words in the Greek. Sense, not faith, and all. And if we examine those words, we see that faith is in the nominative case, meaning that it's not the object of a verb. It's the subject of the clause. It's not the object of the clause. So the King James really dropped the ball on the end of this passage in 2 Thessalonians 3.2. Paul is not saying that not all men have faith. Paul is saying that the faith is not for all. 
And that is a perfectly literal translation of these four little Greek words. And they all get it wrong. Paul's asking that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, and he's referring back to the satanic entity in Jerusalem, which he very poetically described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Those disgusting and wicked men, that we should be protected from them, because the faith is not for all. But trustworthy is the prince who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. Those disgusting and wicked men, these are people, the sons of destruction, Satan, which Paul described here in chapter 2. We should seek protection from them because the faith is not for them. It's not for all. It's only for Israel. They operate in accordance with the operation of the adversary, or Satan, just like Christ explained in John chapter 8. Your father is the devil, so you will do the deeds of your father. But Satan is not in heaven. Satan is that collective entity on earth, those serpents and scorpions who descended from the fallen angels. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Paul, addressing the Romans, says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. How did the God of peace bruise Satan under the feet of the Romans shortly? Paul wrote that epistle by my best estimates. In 57 A.D., and 13 years later, that temple in Jerusalem Paul wrote about here in 2 Thessalonians where Satan was sitting, acting as if he was a god, that temple was destroyed. And over a million Edomite Jews, or at least non-Christian Judeans, Judeans that had not yet accepted Christ, over a million of them were destroyed by the Romans according to Josephus. So we see that Paul considered those people in Jerusalem Satan. And here we have a second witness to our exposition of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in Romans 16, verse 20. Paul, Paul imagined that Christians who turned wrong and sinned and were unrepentant, should be cast out of the assemblies of Christ. And casting them out of the assemblies of Christ in his time, he imagined that the enemies of Christ would destroy those people, that God would use his enemies to judge Israelites who forsake him. That was Paul's worldview. That worldview is reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the unrepentant fornicator was to be put out of the assembly. And Paul says explicitly that the people should put him out of the assembly. 
And he says, for what have I to do to judge them also that are outside or without? But them that are without, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. We put our unrepentant brethren out of our assemblies, and God will judge them. Paul reflects that again in one ter- that same idea on different terms in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, Of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they learn not to blaspheme. In other words, he put these men out of his Christian assembly and prayed probably an imprecatory prayer for God to judge them, as he states in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is written nearly 25 years after Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. John was writing the Revelation probably between the years 92 and 95 AD, maybe 96 AD. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with the two edges, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwells. That's the, that, that's the sixth or seventh witness we have tonight from the scripture, that Satan is not in heaven. If you believe that, you're a straight clown. You're an ass clown. You're a Baptist ass clown, Don Spears, Jeremy Visser. Satan is not in heaven. In fact, in the New Testament, we could see that Satan was in Jerusalem, that Satan was destroyed in Jerusalem, and that Satan moved 25 years later to Pergamos. Now, of course, there are many Satans, as John says in other places, that there are many Antichrists. But Pergamos, at the time the revelation was given, must have been what Jerusalem used to be. It must have been a seat of the power of the adversaries of God on earth, not in heaven, Satan is not in heaven. Now, a lot of clowns, the same Baptist-ass clowns, claim that, oh, thinks so, one seed liner. Now, that is simply ad hominem drivel. Everybody who's ever read my writing, listened to my podcasts, knows better than that. Oh, Fink doesn't believe in Satan. Oh, yes, Fink does believe in Satan. Yes, Fink does believe in fallen angels and a rebellion against God and that that rebellion must have had a leader, that collective entity was called Satan. That's very clear in Revelation chapter 12. In the book of Genesis, we see that old serpent is connected to a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that tree just like it does very often in Scripture, represents a race. And that race had a lot of branches. Collectively, 
That is Satan. They are the serpents. They are the scorpions. The people that opposed Christ, those Canaanite, Edomite Jews in Judea, collectively, are part of that same Satan. That's Satan. That's what the scripture teaches. Satan is not in heaven. That's what the Baptist ass clowns teach. That does not belong in Christian identity. Christian identity should adhere to the scripture. That's what I seek to do. If the scripture can truly correct me, then I will change my mind. But I haven't seen anything in Scripture which disagrees with what I've taught here tonight. However, the Scripture itself has to be understood in the time that it was written. And to do that, we have Greco-Roman historians for a thousand years we have Assyrian and Sumerian inscriptions for a thousand years that reveal to us a lot of the meanings of these idioms, these metaphors, and these allegories, and other parts of the scripture, as we have seen tonight, reinforce those revelations without a doubt. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. Next Friday, Brother Ryan. Next Saturday, Pastor Mark Downey. The event calendar is already filled out through the beginning of August at Christogenia.org. It works. Good night.